If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Richard I is one of the most famous kings of England, fated as a warrior and a crusader. To some, he's also a gay icon, a reputation born of whispers that first emerged in the 20th century. Dr Gabrielle Storey is a medieval historian specialising in gender and sexuality. And in today's episode, she speaks to Kev Lochin about what Richard's reign tells us about complex concepts of masculinity in the medieval era and why we need to be careful about applying modern labels to historical figures. Gabby, welcome to the History Extra podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me. So we're talking about Richard I off the back of a piece uh, you wrote for the website about the relationship between Richard and the French king, Philip II, sometimes also known as Philip Augustus, and what their interactions can tell us about masculinity in the medieval period. Gabby, where do we start when we're talking about friendship between these two kings? Richard and Philip Augustus are really interesting figures because they're both very famous in their own rights for being, you know, very military men, being strong military figures, being leaders, being fighters, being warriors. And therefore, they've got lots of different 
aspects of masculinity to look at when we think about it. And obviously, Richard I has got his own kind of myths and legends in the uh, British uh, public memory as well. One of those legends you make note of on the piece, and I think we should address fairly early on, is this concept of Richard's sexuality and how his relationship with Philip might have been more than friendship. So where does this idea come from? So Richard and Philip, you know, both 12th century kings and Richard's sexuality or indeed allegations of what we would now call homosexuality has actually come from 20th century writings. So 20th century early historians, so Lawrence Harvey, in 1948 kind of pens this uh, history and he focuses on this specific quote from a 12th century chronicler Roger of Haldon and talks about Sodom as in the city of Sodom, the biblical city of Sodom and how in Harvey's eyes Richard has undertaken this transgression and this transgression is interpreted as being one of same-sex physical activity so same-sex affection towards other men and it's Richard's transgressions here which is why this myth of sexuality starts to circulate but if you actually go back and look at Howden's phrasing itself what Howden has actually written it's not to do with sexuality at all it's not to do with transgression in terms of where we usually think sodomy comes about this transgression is more to do with Richard erring in terms of not being hospitable, in terms of not being virtuous or a good king. And therefore, this myth, this misinterpretation of what Howden has actually been saying about Richard and about Sodom has really perpetuated and really kind of stuck in the minds of 20th century historians. And therefore, it's really seeped into the public consciousness as well. And there's been a lot of work done in the last 20, 30 or so years that has, you know, pushed back against this myth, kind of looked, again, at the primary evidence with a new perspective, with a lot more interpretation. And as I'm sure we'll get on to, I've got my own kind of thoughts and perspectives around Richard and his masculinity and his sexuality as well. But to use this quote from Howden as evidence for Richard's sexuality really just doesn't pan out. And it's just, it's interesting how the work of indeed a 20th century historian, it's not even something that's got a really long background, has really stuck around. And to pick part of that quote, I think it's the same one we're talking about, the um, the Roger of Howden one. There's one part you mentioned about that everyday day, Richard and Philip, uh, they eat at the same table from the same dish. And at night, they had not separate chambers, this implication that they shared a bed together. So that's the interpretation that's been made. But I seem to recall you arguing that that wasn't actually that uncommon. Yeah, so this uh, quote as well that has been used for Richard and Philip, it's, as you mentioned, you know, they share the same plate, they're sat next to each other, and they later go on to share a bed and this is seen as very intimate you know these acts are very much ones of political closeness and that bed sharing moment you know is obviously something that's going to ring a lot of bells for people and being like hang on how often do we have kings sharing beds with each other you know how often do we see people sharing a bed with each other 
in the medieval period. Surely this means something. And it does mean something, you know, but it doesn't mean what you'll immediately jump to. It means that Richard and Philip are actually very close at this point. This is an example of particularly close affection within the context of male friendship. It's not immediately sexual. And if you look at bed sharing throughout the medieval period, there are, of course, there are definitely instances where there is a sexual connotation to it. But this isn't one of them, in my opinion. This is something where we're looking at Richard and Philip showing evidence of their male friendship, showing their closeness with one another as kings of England and France. And they want to publicly display their friendship with one another. And this is just another aspect of how they do so. You said something really interesting there, which I'm going to pick up on in a minute. But before we do that, I'd like to take Richard's story a bit further on. So that's the kind of the the rumour around him and his friendship with Philip. How does this tie into the wider themes of masculinity? In the medieval period, we've got lots of different notions about what it means to be masculine. So masculinity is not just a singular idea. You've got multiple masculinities. And these come from different virtues. So we've got ideas of brotherhood, ideas of chivalry, uh, ideas of being a warrior, but also being a father is one of those kind of traits that feeds into what it means to be male, what it means to be masculine in the medieval period. And This is really interesting because it means we've got these competing ideas sometimes of what it can mean to be masculine, what it means to be male. And more often than not as well, you've also got this idea that to be masculine is to be the superior male figure, to be the leader. And that means you've got to embody many of these traits. And sometimes where Richard has come unstuck when we're thinking about these masculine traits is the fact that he's not a father. And obviously this is something that continues to be an issue throughout the rest of his reign is that the fact that he doesn't have a child and therefore he's not fulfilling that masculine ideal of fatherhood. So he's got to find other ways to show off his masculinity, to show off his virility. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned fatherhood there. How important is that particular virtue to the overall sense of masculinity in 
the medieval period. And I guess actually, should I, am I using that right by saying masculinity when we're talking about multiple masculinities? Do they all become one masculinity or do they exist separately in the medieval era? Masculinities exist separately alongside each other, but fatherhood is one of the most dominant ones because when we think about the medieval world, we're thinking about the fact that lands, inheritance, indeed the actual throne itself, when we're thinking about kings, they're going to pass down from father to son. And we've seen in this century that there's issues around women succeeding to the throne. And we see this with the Empress Matilda, but that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast, obviously. But with Richard and with other men, it's really key to be able to bear heirs. This is a sign of virility. This is a sign of strength. So the fact that Richard isn't that preoccupied, uh, doesn't think so much about having an heir, and indeed then doesn't produce one, means he's got to go and show this another way. And you can see with other kings of the period, I mean, Philip Augustus himself, Philip II of France, he was a much longed for son. His father, Louis VII, had nearly 30 years waiting for a male heir to appear and goes through three marriages in the process before he has Philip. And this is a major concern. And again, in this period, we want to see sons. We want to see male heirs. And therefore, not fulfilling that masculine virtue of fatherhood can be rarely seen as a concern. You mentioned something interesting there about how he was having to express his masculinities in other ways. Is there a sense that then his martial prowess is somehow compensatory in terms of his worldview and how he's perceived for not having become a father? I would absolutely see that as the case because I think with Richard, from... His early years, you know, from the get-go, he is very much someone who's involved in military activities. This is something he's enthusiastic about. And we see Richard actually pay more attention to military activity than we do to rulership, to kingship itself. Richard, in a sense, really just wants to go off and he wants to go on the crusade. He's very keen to fulfil that crusading vow. But once he's come back from the crusade, he's not focused on rulership. He's not focused on fatherhood. And I think he's just more focused on fighting. He's more focused on being a warrior. And I think for whatever reason that Richard and Berengaria's marriage is not compatible for whatever reasons they are not having children, Richard is very much looking to show off his military prowess, to show off his military strength, because he's not focused on fatherhood. And again, it's difficult to know without more evidence why a child isn't forthcoming. But we can see that Richard's really going to amp up this military warrior image whilst he hasn't got sons, whilst he hasn't got heirs around him. And there are two sides to this particular tale, right? So you've got Richard on the one hand, but there's also Philip. And you have these questions attaching themselves to Richard. As far as I've understood it, Philip doesn't have the same reputation linked to him. So what's the difference there? I think you hit the nail on the head there and that's really interesting to think about why this myth why this legend has attached itself to Richard and I think it's because Philip 
does have uh, male heirs, he does have children, but Philip is seen as successful on so many different fronts. I mean, he successfully retakes the English land in France, so all these counties, these duchies that had previously belonged to the kings of England, and Philip's successful in many ways, and therefore we don't need to think about Philip and his sexuality in the same way that historians have obviously focused on Richard. So when we're thinking about Richard, we're thinking about why doesn't he have these children, you know, what's going on here that might have led to Richard not having heirs, and therefore I think that rumour of sexuality, that rumour of same-sex sexuality, really has started to simmer in the eyes of 20th century historians in the way it doesn't need to, it doesn't come to the attention of those who write about Philip Augustus, those who write about Philip II, because he has his heirs, he has strong, successful reign, he's got a dynasty, he's got his lineage, and that doesn't happen with Richard. So the thing you said earlier that I wanted to pick up on is how often do we see kings sharing his bed together? Um, and that's a really good question. How often do we see it? Because one of the things you mentioned in the, the piece you wrote for us is that uh, it's a political act, the bed sharing. So presumably he didn't invent it and it didn't end with him. No, not at all. So another figure that might be you know, quite well known to our audience or indeed to other people who've got that interest in the medieval period is Richard's father, Henry II. And he is someone else who I've written about who undertakes this political act of bed sharing with one of his really loyal followers, William Marshall. And William Marshall is, you know, one of those enduring figures of medieval knighthood. He serves five kings of England. I mean, the man just carries on going as this archetype, this epitome of a medieval knight. And we again have this act, this political act of bed sharing between Henry and William. And we don't see that speculation, again, of sexuality. We don't see any kind of rumours circulating around Henry and William the same way that Richard and Philip seem to have drawn attention. And therefore, we've got evidence in the very near past of bed-sharing being a political act, not a sexual one. There's precedence for bed-sharing as a political act, before Henry II and William Marshall as well. And that notion, that act of bed sharing continues after Richard and Philip as well. So it's one of those acts when when we put it in its context, it's not a standalone event. It's not something that just comes out of nowhere. It's part of a wider pattern, part of a wider trend of seeing men showing their friendship, showing their closeness to one another, showing brotherhood, camaraderie, those aspects of masculinities that I was talking about earlier. We can rarely see that bed sharing is one of those notions of brotherhood, of camaraderie, of closeness. Could you break down those concepts of masculinities a bit more for us? And, you know, we've talked about how masculinity ties into image. Is that a very specific set of royal masculinities or all these things, challenges that we suspect all medieval people would be embracing? We've got 
royal masculinities and these are very different to some of the other masculinities we see in this period because a lot of work has thought about clerical masculinities about how monks and how religious figures would have acted would have thought of themselves and actually there's a real difference between clerical masculinities and those royal masculinities that are so applicable to Richard and Philip and all the other kind of kings and royal figures we think about in this period and again there's that real tie to chivalry to knighthood. Just to wrap up the story a bit of Richard and Philip how does their friendship end because they're not best pals for all their lives? At this moment you know it looks like we're gonna have Richard and Philip as the kingly BFFs, you know, that they're going to be the ones who uh, show that maybe we can work together. Maybe this rivalry between England and France isn't going to escalate any further. And for those who follow the Third Crusade or those who follow English-French relationships, we know this isn't the case. So Richard is betrothed he's engaged to Philip's sister Alice and Richard and Philip go off on the third crusade and you know there's kind of already this kind of rumbling that maybe things aren't going to pan out between them because Philip's had a tactic of employing the Angevin princes so we've had Richard we've got John he's also got other brothers Henry and Geoffrey and Philip Augustus has used those brothers for military alliances when it suited him. He struck up friendships with these brothers when it looks to suit him. And then once they're no longer politically useful, he then starts to turn away from them. But he's not the only person who's doing this. Richard breaks his alliance with Philip by ditching Alice, Philip's sister, for a new marital alliance which comes in the shape of Berengaria of Navarre. And he get, Richard gets married to Berengaria whilst they're en route to the Holy Hand. And as that happens, that's then going to completely and utterly sever that political alliance between the English and the French. And so from this point onwards, Richard and Philip no longer have those connections with one another that are going to be friendly you know Philip is quite rightly a bit peeved that Richard has rejected his sister in the form of this new Anglo-Navarese alliance Philip now has the opportunity the motivations the reasons to look towards conquest to look towards encroaching on Richard's lands in France and from this point on you're going to see that Anglo-French rivalry, that Anglo-French enmity stir up once again. Talking about Richard and these kind of allegations around him, this gets us to perhaps a wider question of how we ascribe sexuality to persons on the past. And perhaps a different question there is, do we have a right to? So sexuality and how we think about medieval figures is something that I really love thinking about, something that's really interesting, but equally, again, comes with so many challenges because we've got all these modern terms, you know, we've got what we now 
label. And again, even in our world, in our modern world, these are terminology that is constantly changing. And we've got LGBT plus or LGBTQ plus, depending on what we're looking at. And these are very much modern inventions. And I talk about very briefly in my wider piece on Richard and Philip about the nuance that we need to apply because using the terms queer, using the terms LGBT, using the terms homosexual, they're all modern inventions and it's an issue of anachronism, it's an issue of applying a terminology, a modern terminology, onto a past, onto a time where it didn't exist and it's definitely, you know, a complicated thing to do because you want to talk about these figures. You want to talk about their sexualities, about their behaviour, their affections, their activities when they don't fit into a binary. You know, we can't talk about pre-modern figures existing in a vacuum. They weren't just gay or straight. They weren't just heterosexual or homosexual. They are fluid, expressive figures. They are individuals who have their own feelings, their own affections, their own sexualities. And it's really difficult to think about how to categorise that, how to label that without removing them from their own affections. So for modern ease, for modern discussions, we often think about people falling into that umbrella of queer history. When we're talking about pre-modern figures, We want to make sure that we're talking about their attractions, their affections, their behaviours in a correct way. And I think this is something that historians are going to carry on tackling. And it's certainly something I'm going to carry on thinking about is that we can potentially use LGBT, use queer as that kind of modern framework, as that modern link for these figures whilst also being very explicit, being very clear that this is not a term they would have identified with. This is not a term that they would have recognised when we're thinking about it. Where does this leave us with how we should view Richard himself? When I think about Richard in particular, I want to think about him as a being, as a man, as a person who undoubtedly you know obviously rarely experienced feelings and affections that may not have been just for other women but he was a sexual person he's a sexual being just like we are just like everyone else is and therefore we can't just put him in a box we can't just put him in a category we cannot universally say he was homosexual he was queer he was straight he was gay and we're never really going to get to the bottom of what his sexual preferences may have been. And therefore, we really need to think about, when we're discussing these figures of the past, acknowledge that they're sexually fluid, acknowledge that they've got their own attractions and preferences, but don't just categorically put them under one term we can't know how these figures feel how these figures identify particularly when we don't have their own words and that gets much more nuanced much more apparent with some figures as we progress into the early modern period and beyond about how they might have felt how they may have identified when we've got letters when we've got writings that allow us to uncover those sexualities 
more and more. But, you know, I'm not saying there's no such thing as an LGBT or a queer figure in the past. Not at all. There's always been and there always will be figures who did not fit into what we now call that heterosexual worldview. They're always there. But it's just a very nuanced, complex, messy, interesting discussion, analysis, viewpoint that will get us to how we think about them and how we can discuss them and record their pasts. Given what we've talked about, the trials of assigning sexuality to people we we don't know first-hand knowledge of, is it also difficult to consider Richard to be a gay icon? Oh, that's a toughie. I mean, uh... <laughs> Richard, I think, is always going to be someone who... He's always going to be a king, always going to be a man that sticks in the public's imagination for so many different ways. And I mean, obviously, I'm a diehard fan of his wife, who always gets left out of the um, picture. But I think that thinking of Richard as a gay icon is perhaps doing a bit of a disservice to some of those other figures that we have that we can almost say with a bit more certainty do have sexual desires that we know about a bit more clearly and think about what can he tell us about sexuality? What can he tell us about masculinity and friendship and all those wonderful like pieces that make us human? So maybe not quite a gay icon, but definitely someone who can tell us that little bit more about what it means to be human. That was Dr Gabrielle's story. You can read more of her thoughts on Richard I at historyextra.com forward slash medieval hyphen masculinity. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.